the surrenders begin. Do you still think the election was stolen? Absolutely. Still? No question. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Patricia Murphy. Greg Bluestein is traveling to Milwaukee for the Republican primary debate, and we'll hear from him later in today's podcast. This is the new expanded version of our show with our newest addition, Bill Nygut. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Patricia. You know, you could say that in some ways the official starting bell for the Republican presidential race is going to sound loud and clear tonight. We're going to get to the debate later on in the podcast. And I'm the AJC's Tia Mitchell in Washington, where eyes in the nation's capital are focused on two places, Georgia and Wisconsin. Bill, I feel like this has been the slow burn before what I hope is some kind of monumental event. Um, What do you expect from the debate Wednesday night? Well, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch um, how the other candidates attack Ron DeSantis, who is in second place with no Donald Trump there. He's going to be a target. And then we'll see whether he has the stamina and the uh, poise to represent himself well. Well, that is the nicest way to say it. We're going to see if it's what we call a personality test. Can you handle it, Governor DeSantis? (laughs) Well, we're going to have all of that um, coming up on today's show. Well, if you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. And we're back with Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Patricia Murphy here with host Bill Nygut. We will have Tia Mitchell joining us in a few, as well as an on-the-ground report from Greg Bluestein in Milwaukee on the site of tonight's GOP convention. But first, here in Georgia, we have a whole lot going on, all having to do with the indictments against former President Donald Trump and 18 of his co-defendants. Already, we have seen surrender at the Fulton County Jail, Atlanta bondsman Scott Hall, and Trump attorney John Eastman. Here is John Eastman at the Fulton County Jail on Tuesday. The attempt to criminalize our rights to such redress with this indictment will have and is already having profound consequences for our system of justice. My legal team and I will vigorously contest every count of the indictment in which I have been named and also every count in which others are named. We also learned Tuesday that more bonds have been set for additional co-defendants, including David Schaefer, 
the former chairman of the Georgia GOP. He was granted a $75,000 bond. State Senator Sean Stull, a Republican elector, was granted a $10,000 signature bond. Mike Roman, a former Trump campaign official, was granted a $50,000 bond. Jenna Ellis, an attorney affiliated with the Trump campaign, was granted a $100,000 bond. And Kathy Latham, the former chairwoman of the Coffee County Republican Party and a Republican elector who tried to cast Georgia's presidential votes for Donald Trump, was granted a $75,000 bond. Well, Bill, that is just a part of this unbelievable flood of news that we've We've started to have, and I mean, we're going to continue to have on this story for weeks and months and potentially years to come. Don't say years. (laughs) Please don't say years. You can do it, Bill. You can do it. (laughs) So here, you know, Patricia, uh, it is really noteworthy that John Eastman, if, if Donald Trump is the main protagonist, if he's the first lead in this drama, John Eastman is the second lead because John Eastman's involvement in almost every aspect of the alleged conspiracy that Fonnie Willis has laid out in her indictments, he's, his footprints are everywhere. So it's fascinating that he turned himself in, uh, was booked today. And, and I don't want to let that word go lightly because I, I may be wrong, but I don't think I've heard that word used too much in the other uh, times in which Donald Trump as the only defendant appeared in court, booked, booked in criminal court, uh, essentially with criminal charges, uh, a, a man who is a lawyer for the president of the United States. To me, that's just, again, a chilling word in all of this that's unfolded. Yeah, so the word chilling, I think, is so fitting. And I'll add another word to it, um, sobering. That was how I felt on Sunday morning, um, Reporters with the AJC are taking shifts down at the Fulton County Jail because these defendants can turn themselves in 24 hours a day. They can do it if they prefer under the cover of darkness, or we certainly expect Donald Trump to do it under the hot glare of the media lights as he prefers. But I was down there on Sunday morning. Um, It was a very, very quiet day, beautiful morning in Atlanta. And there were several police cars that came in with people, um, you know, just average Georgians, what, whatever had happened, whatever had put them in the back of a police car, they were going in to get booked. And you see these double gates open really slowly. It's a, sur- it's a facility that's surrounded by a very high chain link fence and then lots of twisted barbed wires on the top, all kinds of signs that say, you know, do not enter, no cell phones, um, you know, inmate processing center. And then you can see the Fulton County Jail. And I mean, this, is, this has got to be three blocks from Georgia Tech's campus. It is so close. It's right there in Midtown. And I think most people may not know that. You don't see it from a major road. Um, it's about a 12-story building. They're just the tiniest slits for windows. And we have had lots of reporting recently about, I mean, just really horrific deaths in that facility. Um, They are being investigated by the Department of Justice for, frankly, human rights abuses. John Ossoff has been investigating that jail as well and the treatment of prisoners there. So to see... um, everyday people going in, as well as the former president now planning to go in. Um, Fulton County Sheriff Pat Labatt said 
he and these other defendants will be processed just like everybody else. Um, that typically means a pat down, fingerprints, a mugshot. Um, and that is a a very humbling experience, to say the least. Yeah. And, and I, th- I would be surprised if we don't hear Donald Trump make some statement about the conditions in the jail as an example of what a democratic corrupt administration allows to happen. It strikes me that would be right up his alley uh, coming out of the booking that he goes through. Probably now we know on on Thursday, Patricia. Yeah, so we certainly expect him on Thursday. You know, one name we have not seen come up yet is Rudy Giuliani. I would say he is probably the other um, main supporting character in this situation. We saw him, um, obviously, in Washington, in New York, uh, and then here in Georgia, testifying to a Georgia Senate committee when John Eastman was testifying remotely. Rudy Giuliani had gotten on a plane and come down to Georgia just to testify um, to those uh, state senators and representatives who, by the way, had no idea that he was walking in the door and he just showed up. And it was those special hearings um, to convince the Georgia State House and Senate that they should not certify those votes and they should um, consider this election stolen, which after more than 60 lawsuits, multiple recounts, uh, many investigations. Um, certainly that was not the case, but um, the goal of that entire um, process was to convince people otherwise. And um, it seems like there, obviously there are criminal charges associated with that. Um, Bill, I wanted to bring one thing up and see what you think about it. I've heard a number of attorneys today talk about what this means for lawyers who are uh, making cases, making arguments. Sometimes they're really super solid arguments. Sometimes they're a little less solid. Um, But they're concerned that this could be criminalizing, um, in some cases, the practice of law. What do you what did you think about that? I I heard some of those same discussions. And and there's an interesting development in David Schaefer's case that I think relates to just that. You know, David Schaefer has uh, now written a petition to have his case move from Fulton County to federal court. And in doing that, he provided some new documents that had not been disclosed before that tell us just how much the Trump campaign was involved in efforts to assemble a group of pro-Trump activists in that December 14th uh, gathering at the state capitol. And um, here's what the filing says, uh, in part. An attorney for the president, meaning Trump, was present at the December 14th, 2020 meeting of the presidential electors itself and advised the presidential electors, including Mr. Schaefer, that performance of their duties was necessary on behalf of the president of the United States. So there's a very vivid example of what you're talking about. Can a David Schaefer claim that he was acting under the advice of counsel? which would be perfectly fine. Lawyers are allowed to give their um, uh, clients a lot of advice. Not all of it has to be accurate um, or even necessarily uh, end up being accepted in the court as legal. But I think that's a clear example. And it's some new information that I hadn't seen before. Yeah, I hadn't seen that either. And I have to say, if somebody came to me and said, the president's lawyer is telling you you should do this, I mean, what would you do if you were a citizen in that room? Now, we do know that several of the people who were meant to be electors 
knew that that didn't sound right and said they were not going to come down to the Capitol that day. They were not going to help out um, with that process. And it also has to be said that Trump's White House lawyers uniformly told him that this was not going to be constitutional um, and would be something that would get him in his own kind of hot water. Um, B.J. Pack, the U.S. attorney down here, of course, lost his job over this process because he felt like he was being pressured to kind of come up with investigation results that just didn't support the facts. Um, The attorney general of the United States said this is total nonsense. I've looked into it. It's not real. You know, but the train just sped ahead nonetheless. And it has gotten people really from the top, top echelons of government, obviously, President Donald Trump, all the way down to that Coffee County State Republican Party chairwoman. And that's something that really caught my eye as well, um, because these are people who... You just have to wonder at what point does this cross over into I thought I was helping my president and I thought I was helping my party over into and now we are in criminal hot water. Yeah, um, actually, I think that's really fascinating. And by the way, one of the other people who did, in fact, turn himself in to the uh, uh, jail today was Scott Hall, as you've already mentioned. Scott Hall is a bail bondsman. He was indicted because he was one of those who came to Coffee County and was part of the group that uh, essentially broke into the voting machinery there and extracted uh, voter material, confidential material. Um, and, and so he's on the lower end of the totem pole with Eastman today being up high. But one other thing about the um, uh, notion of how an attorney counsels a client, the attorney who um, came to uh, talk to David Schaefer was Ray Smith. I think I'm right. He's one of the 19 uh, uh, people indicted. And Schaefer says that he said to Ray Smith, if we do not hold this meeting, our election contest would effectively be abandoned. And Smith said to him, that's right. There you go. That's how it works. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> um, okay, well, 19 defendants, 19 separate sets of counsel, 19 separate judicial processes going on here. Um, we at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are going to be covering this literally 24 hours a day. Listeners, you can be assured of that. So continue to come back to AJC.com and, of course, the Politically Georgia podcast and the Breakdown podcast for the latest developments in those Trump indictments. Well, just ahead, a renewed push to investigate Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones in Georgia's fake elector plot and the vow to investigate Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis over her investigation of Donald Trump. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And we're back with the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. With all the news surrounding the Trump indictment going on, it's going to be hard to keep up. So the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with our new Trump indictment newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. 
ajc.com slash indictment newsletter to have that news come straight to your inbox for your once weekly update. Otherwise, you can come back to the ajc.com, of course, if you just have to get it every minute of the day. Well, Bill, let's talk a little bit about Burt Jones, Lieutenant Governor now, uh, of course, State Senator when the 2020 elections were happening. Um, he himself was potentially planning a run for lieutenant governor, but at the time he was a state senator, um, but also making a lot of news even in real time during the Trump recount. Uh, he was named as one of the targets of Fannie Willis's investigation originally, and he was carved out by Judge Robert McBurney at the time because Fannie Willis had thrown a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey, who was Burt Jen's Democratic opponent in the 2022 um, election for lieutenant governor while Fannie Willis was investigating Burt Jones. So McBurney said that is really a terrible idea. I don't know when I saw a worse idea, Fannie Willis. Um, I mean, he really let her have it. And he said, as a result, Burt Jones, although you may want to investigate him, you will not be investigating him. He was carved off and put to the side. So while this investigation was really barreling forward, Jones was really minding his own business as lieutenant governor down at the Capitol. Well, the day after the Trump indictment came out, we got news from the prosecuting attorney's counsel that they would be soon appointing a special investigator to now start to investigate Burt Jones' role in the Trump uh, recount and the effort to overturn the elections here in Georgia. Um, so, Bill, what do you think this does to Burt Jones, both um, functionally and politically? Well, it, it, it certainly suddenly gives him reason to spend some nights tossing and turning, I would think. He was very fortunate that um, Judge McBurney, who, by the way, as we all know, is always entertaining in the um, uh, judgments, in the opinions that he releases. One of the things he said about Fannie Willis is, what were you thinking? Literally, what were you (laughs) thinking? I I think everybody was thinking, what were you thinking? Yeah, Um, it was something of a bank shot, many people who support Fannie Willis say, because I think the fundraiser for Charlie Bailey was during the uh, uh, primary campaign, the Democratic primary. Nevertheless, obviously, McBurney made an important point. So Burt Jones had a free ride throughout all of the stages uh, of the investigation and the headlines leading up to the indictments. But now you have to say that given 19 indictments, many of them for much of the same sort of behavior that Burt Jones is alleged to have undertaken, he was a fake elector. Um, he went, he, he in fact, I think, uh, suggested very uh, adamantly there needs to be a session of the legislature to see if we can overturn the results of the election. I would think that um, the investigation of him could very well lead to a 20th indictment. But in the meantime, he's got to be spending some sleepless nights. Yeah, he certainly seemed to be ever present whenever there was something happening with the Trump camp talking about let's do a recount, let's hold a press conference, um, let's talk about the election being stolen. I don't recall that Burt Jones ever said the election was stolen, mm-hmm. but he did say, I have a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there are other names not in this indictment who were also ever present. And I would put Lynn Wood 
the attorney for Donald Trump at the top of that list. Um, He was somebody who was absolutely everywhere during the uh, Trump recounts, efforts to overturn the elections. He's not in here. I don't know if that's because he's been talking to prosecutors or if because they simply decided he didn't um, do anything that was criminal. Um, So I and there were other people who we saw a lot who also have not ended up in this indictment. And so I, I don't know exactly what would happen with Burt Jones. I think in a way it will be helpful for him to have this decision made right now. It's this ever present cloud over him a little bit, a little asterisk by his name, Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, who, by the way, was a target of Fonnie Willis's investigation that now has indicted former President Donald Trump. It's he's always just a, a part of the conversation by going ahead and having a proper investigation. It will decide it one way or another for the lieutenant governor. Am I correct? And you'll tell me if I'm not. In in our colleague Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman's looking at the unindicted co-conspirators trying to decide who is who, they believe that Burt Jones' name was mentioned numerous times as an unindicted co-conspirator as part of this massive uh, alleged plot that she's uh, now going to prosecute. Yes, exactly. And we also don't know the legal status of those unindicted co-conspirators. Does that mean they are at at some point to be indicted? Does that mean they are off the table completely? Um, By going through um, a lot of the specifics in that indictment, like tweets that were posted or specific quotes that were included in there that were also on the public record, that's exactly how Tamar and Bill Rankin and Dave Wickert have been just combing through that document with a fine tooth comb and, and trying to figure out who everybody is. And Burt Jones is certainly on that list. All right. Well, along with news about Burt Jones, we've also gotten news recently, Bill, that state senators, Republican state senators, are calling for an investigation of Fonnie Willis by the new prosecutorial oversight commission that was created by state law earlier this year during the last legislative session. It was extremely controversial when it was created. And it was mostly Republicans saying, we need this bill to have more control over what they were calling rogue DAs. Now, they were saying that those rogue DAs weren't prosecuting enough cases. Obviously, Fannie Willis is prosecuting all kinds of cases, so maybe <laughs> they weren't specific. They also were very careful not to mention Fannie Willis's name. So we heard a lot of other names of DAs that they were giving as examples, and they were careful to use a Democratic DA and a Republican DA. Um, but our work talking to the Democratic DAs around the state, including Fannie Willis, They felt like it was squarely focused at Democrats, squarely focused at um, progressive DAs. I don't really consider Fannie Willis a progressive DA, um, but I talked to her about this bill and she said she felt like it was just straight up racist, that Mm -hmm. this was a bill designed to um, limit the effectiveness, limit the power of recently elected DAs, um, including more than a dozen black uh, and Latino new DAs around the state. And so um, she felt like it was very much targeted at her and people like her. Republicans said, no, that's absolutely not the case. Fannie Willis is not a target of this. That's not what this is about. Lo and behold, the commission doesn't even exist yet. It will not exist until October. And um, Clint Dixon in Gwinnett County and Jason Anavitarte, um, who is a Republican leader in the state Senate, both saying that it's time to use this commission to investigate Fannie Willis. Um, 
what I think is especially interesting is that Sean Still, the state senator who is indicted, is also from Gwinnett County. And so these are, I mean, listen, these are guys who work together, know each other, um, uh, were elected together, campaigned for each other in some cases. And so it feels like there is also something personal going on here. You can toss Burt Jones onto that list of people as well. He was a state senator with a lot of these uh, gentlemen as well. And so it's hard for me to unpack, Bill, exactly what the motivations are here on this bill. Well, I, I think that Senator Clint Dixon gives us some clue. Uh, he was uh, quoted as saying that Fonnie Willis's quote, unabashed goal to become some sort of lefty celebrity <laughs> sort of tells us how he feels. We're not mincing words, Senator Dixon. <laughs> I think he said leftist celebrity. <laughs> yes. Just, I don't want to be misquoting him on that. But as you as you point out, this is a bill that Governor Kemp pushed very hard. He was squarely behind it. Um, this prosecuting attorney's qualification commission, as you say, isn't even going to be impaneled until October. But Clint Dixon uh, and Anna Vitardi said, that's one of the first things they're going to do is take Fonnie Willis, uh, that case, to that commission and ask uh, that they look at whether or not she's crossed a line somehow. Yeah, and Anna Vitarte also said that he wants, because I'm, I wasn't even sure what exactly they're supposed to investigate when this not yet existent panel starts to investigate people. He said he wants to investigate the use of resources in the DA's office. Is this taking people off of murder cases, rape cases, human trafficking cases? You know, that's a criticism we heard from the very beginning from also from Democrats. Is this going to pull people away? Um, now, we can say that uh, that DA's office is prosecuting Lots of gang members, lots of other, another RICO case, all of that is going full clip. But if there is something to be investigated, I think the end of a Tarte angle rather than Clint Dixon's sort of personal celebrity angle is one that, that uh, could get pursued. But, but I think you hinted at something really interesting about this. As you pointed out, when this bill was moving, um, it, it was uh, put in place by Republicans who thought that, that certain district attorneys were not using their office to punish enough. They weren't taking on enough cases. So you could argue that the way that Fonnie Willis can get out from under charges by people like Senator Clint Dixon is to do a particularly good job in her prosecution of the 19 defendants in the uh, criminal conspiracy uh, case. <laughs> Yes, I can almost hear her saying she doesn't have time for this foolishness. That's sort of what I hear her saying in my mind. Well, still to come, we'll go to Milwaukee for a preview of the first Republican primary debate. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Well, we think the Morning Jolt newsletter sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics, and you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. 
You can join the community now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts and get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Well, I want to bring in Tia Mitchell, our third co-host today. Well, tonight at nine o'clock p.m., Fox News is hosting the first Republican primary debate at FistServe Forum in Milwaukee. Our own Greg Bluestein is there and has this report. A post-indictment Trump-free debate. It's Greg Bluestein here in Milwaukee, where I'm covering the first Republican debate of the 2024 campaign. Donald Trump is not going to be on the debate stage but he will loom over everything. Whether they like it or not, Republican contenders here cannot ignore the former president's legal peril, including the recent indictment leveled in Fulton County against Trump and his 18 of his allies. We saw an example of that this weekend at the Republican gathering in Atlanta, where some candidates avoided all mention of Donald Trump's name. Some, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, spoke obliquely of static and distractions. Others, like former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, played right into it, saying Republicans cannot ignore the criminal charges that Donald Trump faces. It's going to be a particularly pivotal moment for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He wants to prove the primary is really a two-man race, even though he's polling a distant second to Donald Trump. His campaign has endured a string of shakeups. Donors are worried, and he's facing increasing pressure from other rivals. DeSantis' advisors put out a memo where they say they expect the other seven contenders on the debate stage to try to turn it into a dog pile on Ron by attacking the Florida governor to generate buzz and attract donors. His campaign indicated he might not even punch back, but will instead focus on electability in November 2024 and his vision to beat Joe Biden. But that won't stop the lesser polling candidates like Chris Christie and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy from trying to make up ground against the Florida governor. Christie said DeSantis should get the hell out of the race if he tries to defend Trump, whereas Ramaswamy called him another career politician. Okay, well, the dog pile on Ron debate, I guess that is the headline coming out of Greg's report. And so now we have all read together. We've all heard Greg's preview of the debate tonight, which is very, very helpful. Um, So Tia, among the people who are going to be on the stage is Senator Tim Scott, who you get to cover up in Washington quite a bit. And even when I said your name, you smiled a little bit when I mentioned Tim Scott. What do you think he needs to do tonight or what's his opportunity? Yeah, to me, I smile because Tim Scott is such an interesting character. I remember um, talking with um, Bill, I think, right after Tim Scott's launch. And it's like everybody wants to love Tim Scott and they say he would make such a formidable Republican nominee and he checks all the boxes and he's so sincere and has a great story and he's polling at 3% or 5%. And Uh, it's got to be killing him. Yeah. So it's like, I think people want to see Tim Scott being presidential They want to see him not focusing on Trump, but not aligning himself too much with the MAGA wing of the party. They really want him to represent the path forward away from Trump. But there's just no evidence that is going to resonate with Republican voters. And so I smile because it's like 
in a lot of people's minds, Tim Scott is doing all the right things and they are so excited to hear from him. And I'm sure, you know, during the debate, if it focuses on policy and not pettiness, he can talk about the First Step Act and bipartisan um criminal justice reform and and being conservative values, standing for family and pulling yourself up from your bootstraps and the American dream. There's just no evidence that moves the needle in a Republican primary. You know, the way you said that, that he's doing all the right things, it reminds me so much of that uh GOP primary against Herschel Walker, all of those candidates who were so highly qualified were doing all the right things. And it just didn't matter. It was just sort of like MAGA wants what MAGA wants and MAGA gets what MAGA wants. <laughs> um, but Bill, I think that Greg really hit on this and it's going to be the key question going into the debate and we'll see what happens coming out of the debate is what exactly do these candidates do about Donald Trump? Not just he's the front runner who's not on the stage, but this is a man who's been indicted four times, um, twice now about trying to overturn the 2020 elections. And it's been the one question that a lot of these candidates either don't want to answer or when they're asked, they have a really hard time answering it. And you had pulled some audio from North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. You know, Patricia, Fox News has already made it clear that Donald Trump may not be in the hall uh, tonight uh, on the stage, but they've said Donald Trump will be part of this debate. They talked about maybe playing clips of Donald Trump. They're going to ask the other candidates what their uh, thoughts are about the Trump indictments and the like. And we know already that with just a couple of exceptions, Chris Christie being uh, the uh, uh, biggest exception, they're going to hedge. And I watched Doug Burgum on uh, Meet the Press on Sunday. He'll be on the debate stage. I heard Chuck Todd ask him over and over again to please say something about the indictment of Donald Trump now in Fulton County, Georgia, among other places. And I thought Burgum was a perfect example of how most of these candidates are completely evading talking about Trump. Here is just one exchange as a good example of that. Do you think he did try to overturn the election results in 2020, that he made a concerted effort to do that? Well, Chuck, I, I, this is one of these things. I think there's an entire uh, cable news industry, there's a entire social media industry built around uh, trying to answer that question. Uh, and when where we're coming from, uh, you know, we're excited to be on the debate stage, the least known candidate on there. Uh, if you want to fill this gap where you've got, you mentioned 83% of Americans uh, don't trust our institutions. The way that starts is leadership at the top. Any organization I've been involved with, it starts with a leader that you that can trust, that's got the character and the integrity, uh, the proven track record of being able to do that. And we that's what I've done my whole life in every organization I've been, but people don't know that yet. So we absolutely are going to leave that to this whole industry. We've got to focus on right. telling our story and telling the story of what we've been able to get done in North Dakota. You know, Patricia, that strikes me as a, an egregious example of what so many of these Republican candidates are doing with Trump. And we already know from uh, 2016 that ignoring him is not a ticket to success. Oh, I think they've all learned that the hard way. I think some of them are about to learn it the hard way again. But again, we talk about an unpredictable, predictable election. We just don't know where all of this is going. Something else that Burgum said in that interview was that he 
respects the rule of law and respects the role of prosecutors. That's a little different. That's a lot different, actually, from some of the other candidates. And Tia, we had Vivek Ramaswani in town over the weekend, and he told reporters in a gaggle he would pardon Donald Trump on day one. Yeah, and I look forward to hearing more from the other candidates during the debate about their kind of perceptions of this investigation. And I would expect them to be asked whether they would pardon Trump. Um, Some people like DeSantis have been asked and kind of haven't said a clear yes or no, more of a, you know, just focusing on criticizing Fonnie Willis. But again, this is another example of how an answer that might be good for democracy or, you know, be good for the rule of law might not be great for a candidate that wants to win the Republican presidential primary. Because we know that a lot of Republican voters, even if they are open to voting for other candidates, they want to see Republicans standing up for Trump. They don't like what Fonnie Willis is doing. There's a lot of conservative media that, you know, have painted a very negative picture of this Fulton County investigation. So again, it's like once you, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, as far as what Marjorie Taylor Greene taught us, it's that for some people, if you at all are perceived as supporting Fonnie Willis or at all perceived at indicating that you think President Trump has you know, broken the law or done something wrong, that automatically makes you not a true conservative. And that's what these these other candidates are up against as they head into the debate. Yeah. And I've heard, you know, one one way to deflect the questions about Donald Trump is saying, well, I want to talk about what I would do as president. Um, But this is a question that they may have to face as president. And it really does feel like one of the hardest tests of judgment if you are president what would you do in this situation? So I don't I don't think that it has nothing to do with what happens if these people turn in to be the president. It's probably the first decision that they would have to make. Bill, um, Chris Christie has had some really strong words about uh, Donald Trump, including the fact that Donald Trump has decided to skip the debate entirely. Here's that audio. He's a coward. There's no other conclusion to come to that he's both afraid of me and he's afraid of defending his record. And if I had his record, I'd be nervous about showing up, too. Well, Patricia, he's he said that to reporters where you were over the week on Friday and Saturday, and that was at Eric Erickson's gathering. Um, And so I'm curious, you saw the candidates that came, and I'm wondering what clues perhaps you got from watching them on stage with Eric Erickson to how they might perform in the debate tonight. Yeah. So, you know, Ramaswamy was the most interesting to me. He got by far the loudest applause after he spoke and sat down with Erickson Um, because he's never been in politics before. His answers are not political. And the Republicans in that room that had them sitting forward a little bit and listening more closely to what Ramaswamy was saying. And the things he was saying are 
you know, I mean, edgy, to say the least. Um, he's talking about embracing extremism and embracing the ideals of the original American Revolution to lead to a new American revival. He's had, um, you know, the, the higher he gets in the polls, the more APA research is being dumped about him. So we're starting to learn a lot about some of his past statements, and he may be asked about those on stage. Um, another uh, person who was really interesting to me was Vice President Mike Pence. Um, he seems very at peace even if he's just at 2%, he seems to be feeling like he's finally liberated to say what he really believes. And for a man of conviction, all those many years of not saying what he believed felt like a bad fit. And so he seemed very comfortable, uh, talked a lot about um, uh, he just wants people to know that he felt like he did the right thing on January 6th and followed the Constitution and sort of the rest will take care of itself. And he was very well received in that room. I've been I've read that he's been booed at other forums. That certainly was not the case in that room either. So I think um, but this is this feels like a big test tonight. This is when the lights are on. This may be the last time we see some of these people on a debate stage because the criteria will continue to get um, more stringent. And I think some some Republicans have learned that having 13, 18 people on a debate stage does not serve anyone well, except perhaps Donald Trump, because he can kind of do his own thing and uh, have his own message and get elected president at the end of the day. Patricia, I think you brought up a good point, which is that the audience matters. And I just looked it up. They're expecting 7,000 people. You are kidding. To attend this debate in Milwaukee. Yeah. I was like, um, so it's being held in like the the Fifth Basketball Arena. Yeah, like a basketball arena. And, And therefore, you know, the audience can shift the tone of the debate, 100%. you know, who they show support for, who's well received, who gets booed, who gets applause. And I get it. They, it's not like the organizers are going to encourage boos and stuff like that. But, you know, rules are made to be broken, especially when you got 7000 people. Well, another the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel says 4000 to 6000. So, you know. At least 4,000 people, though. That's still a lot. Hey, that's almost as big as a Trump rally. You know, I think one of the things that's going to be fascinating is um, Ron DeSantis keeps having these horrendous missteps on his campaign, and, and the media is all over him for it. And every candidate has an opportunity to go through a trough and try to build himself back up. We've seen it happen before, but with with DeSantis, it keeps happening. And in, in, in lead up to this debate, maybe one of the most embarrassing things that happened to DeSantis is that the memo from consultants telling him what he needs to do in the debate was released to the public. And some of it was pretty standard. Attack the media three to five times. But one of the big points was go after, there was very strong language, I don't remember it now, hammer away at Vivek Ramaswamy. I can't quite figure out how much you accomplish by going after a guy. I understand he's a, he's moving up in the polls, Ramaswamy, but I just don't get that kind of strategy. The point is this whole memo, memo was released, and whatever Ron DeSantis does on the stage, all of us have already, we know what he's going to do because the memo told us. Right. It's like no win for him, because if he does what the memo says, it's like, oh, you're just letting the pack run your campaign. 
But if he ignores the memo and people are going to say, you know, that was some good advice and you bombed the (laughs) debate. Boy, somebody's mad at Ron DeSantis leaking his <laughs> leaking his, his uh, consultant's memo. That was not a nice thing to do. We will soon know if Ron DeSantis follows direction or charges ahead and forges his own path in tonight's debate. Tune in to Politically Georgia tomorrow. We are going to have a post-debate podcast breaking down everything that we heard. Uh, it will be a mini episode uh, with the highlights and bringing you up to speed of anything you might have missed, just in case you go to bed sooner than we go to bed on Wednesday night. And coming up on Friday's episode, we'll answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. And you can call it anytime leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer it right here on the podcast. That number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Let us hear from you. More specifically, let Shane hear from you. He doesn't have anything else going on this week, and he's just waiting by his phone. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all of the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday and every Friday or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 